Hello once again. Thanks for joining us on Space Nuts, where we talk astronomy and space science. My name is Andrew Dunkley, your host. Good to have your company. On this week's episode, episode 308, we'll be talking sonification. It's not some weird family ritual or anything. It's about the sounds of the universe, and we are going to play a few of them for you today. Uh, we'll also be discussing the orbit of Earth and uh, how it's affected our ice sheets Weird, but uh, probably logical in many ways as well. And we'll be answering questions about gravitational waves, the expansion of the universe, and some of those unknown objects out there that uh, we keep looking for so they don't hit us. And uh, plenty more on this week's edition of Space Nuts. Thanks for joining us. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space Nuts. 5, 4, Three, two, one, two, three, four, five, five, four, three, two, one. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. We are also joined by the great man himself, astronomer at large, <laughs> Professor Fred Watson, <laughs> who uh, is the, the man behind all the knowledge there is to know about knowledge itself and the universe, just as an aside. <laughs> Hello, Fred. I, I thought you were going to introduce somebody important there. That's. Uh, <laughs> I thought, oh, have we got a special guest? I didn't realise. Well, thank you. Yeah. I, I appreciate being the great man. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, my wife isn't here, so I can't introduce the most no, important great person, person in my life. Yes. She's she's at the, the Dubbo Estedford watching our son do a recital, which is fantastic. My grandson, grandson, not my son. Yeah. They would never do anything, but uh, my <laughs> my grandson, he's reciting a poem today. That's so, excellent. Um, I'll be I'll be missing that, but I'll be watching the granddaughters dance on Friday night. That'll be fun. And, and all our listeners in Wales are going to be wondering why there's a nice Stedford in Dubbo. <laughs> we have them every. It's a big event. You know, our Stedford lasts nearly two months. That's pretty impressive. I it's don't know a massive how, how event. Welsh Stedfords last for yeah. <laughs> every kid from every school in the district is forced to do is is performing. <laughs> Encouraged to. <laughs> highly, highly encouraged to do. <laughs> Very good. Well, look, it'll be a wonderful performance. I'm sure you'll have a ball. And I uh, hope, hope the, the Dunkley family comes up trumps with the uh, star of the show. Oh, I hope so too. Yeah, that'd be nice. Now, Fred, uh, let's move to our first topic, and that is sonification. Now, I'm trying to decide whether to play a sound now or hey, leave why it. Why, why don't you... Kick off with a sound and I'll let's try and just work fire out what it this is. one up because this is something that's been in the news yeah. very, very recently. So have a listen to this. Did you hear anything? I heard the earth move. Did you hear anything at all? Yes, I got the I got the sound effects loud and clear. Oh, and... I got nothing. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Oh, well, that's yeah. good. It's the data sonification of the Sagittarius A-star black hole event horizon. Wow. Which is something that we've only had an image of for the last three weeks. Is that right? I think it was three weeks ago to this evening when, when we had the press release, or maybe two weeks ago. I'm losing track of time. With the Event Horizon Telescope, this assembly of 
eight radio observatories with their various dishes pointing towards the centre of our galaxy. And the data were recorded back in 2017, and but now they've crunched it. And what we have is this image of uh, an orange cream donut with three blobs <laughs> in it, <laughs> which is the... Essentially, it's an image of the disk of material swirling around the black hole at the centre of our galaxy. And so mm. I might read from the, from the text accompanying it, because this is from, it's from the NASA website. Actually, I beg your pardon, it's from the Chandra website. Chandra is an X-ray, a NASA X-ray telescope, and they have kind of pioneered this technology of, of turning images into sound and done it, I think, very, very successfully. I hope we might get a chance to play my favourite a bit later on. But the one we've just heard is the sonification, the translation into sound of the latest image from the Event Horizon Telescope of the supermassive black hole at the centre of the Milky Way called Sagittarius A-star. Using a radar-like scan, the sonification begins at the 12 o'clock position and sweeps clockwise. Changes in volume represent the distance in brightness the Event Horizon Telescope observed around the Event Horizon of Sagittarius A-star. The material that is closer to the black hole and hence moving faster corresponds to higher frequencies of sound. This sonification was processed in a special way to allow a listener to hear the data in 3D stereo sound, in which the sounds mm. seem to start directly ahead and then move clockwise to one ear and then the other as the sweep is made. I didn't actually pick that up, Andrew, I'm afraid, but I think well, it was happening. What I might do is play it again because I, yeah, I think well, I because I'm the source, I, I'm not hearing it like You're you not are. Hearing but, it. Yeah. I'll play it again, and I won't. I won't talk over the top of it this time. But now that you've explained what people are listening to, they might get a better understanding yes, of sure. this: right. the sonification of Sagittarius A. then fascinating i just caught a couple of bits at the end but uh that's okay i've listened to them all pre-programmed yes, yeah. yeah to me but, it sounds um, it sounds a lot like waves on a beach actually yeah yeah we've done this uh, once before where they did a um another sonification and every sound represented a different kind of object and yes. that was fascinating i've chosen one that i think demonstrates that and okay. this is this is the Crab Nebula. All right, in, yes. In sonification form. Have a listen to this. That, that's quite amazing and it gets intense as it gets towards the middle of that soundtrack because that's where the most stuff is. <laughs> it, it is, yeah, the intensity uh, of, the, of the radiations, the, the highest at the middle. Can I read the 
NASA caption for that because that's very sure. explanatory, I think. So it's the Crab Nebula has been studied by people since it first appeared in Earth's sky in 1054 AD because it's a supernova remnant. Modern telescopes have captured its enduring engine powered by a quickly spinning neutron star that formed when a massive star collapsed. The com- combination of rapid rotation and a strong magnetic field generates jets of matter and antimatter flowing away from its poles and winds outwards from its equator. For the translation of these data into sound, which also pans left to right, each wavelength of light has been paired with a different family of instruments. X-rays from Chandra Chandra are brass. Optical light from Hubble is purple. Sorry, the purple light in the image are strings. And infrared data from Spitzer can be heard in the woodwinds. In each case, light received towards the top of the image is played at a higher pitch and brighter light is played louder. And that was a lovely sound. I thought that was terrific. Oh, I actually is. heard that one before. Right. Well, I've got one more for you. Good. Okay. And it is... I chose this one because I know a lot of astrophotographers like to take photographs of various things that are close enough to see. And this is <laughs> yeah. this is the sound attributed to M fifty one. I do like that one. That, yeah, it um, sounds it sounds a bit troubled to me. Does M fifty one a bit what? Sorry, troubled. <laughs> uh, yes, of course. M fifty one is the Whirlpool Galaxy. It's a it's a face on spiral galaxy, and uh, so what what they've done is sonified it in the, the same sort of way. Should I read it again, Andrew, so that people so, understand what they're listening to? Read this. Read the caption for this one once again. Courtesy sure. of NASA. When a star like the sun begins to run out of helium to burn, it will blow off huge clouds of gas and dust. These outbursts can form spectacular structures, and that's interesting because this is the caption for a different object, and it's not the one they're <laughs> describing. Good old NASA. So they've got the wrong caption with the with the right picture. Um, oh well. Yeah, but so I might not read that because it's. It's not relevant to what we've just been looking at. But let me, I can interpret the images here because what they've done is combined uh, X-ray, optical, infrared and ultraviolet images of the M51, the Whirlpool Galaxy, and then done this sweep around uh, radar-like from the the centre of the galaxy. So what you're sort of hearing as you hear these different notes being played is mm. you're actually tracing out the spiral arms of the galaxy in sound. It's a lovely idea. What a pity they've got the they've got the wrong caption for it yep. on the oh, website. Well. <laughs> Never mind. That's all right. The best laid and, plans. Uh, I should point out that if you do want to listen to all of the uh, sonifications that they have created at NASA, you can do it through the chandra.harvard.edu website. And I've only given you a few. There's M87 Jet, there's the Perseus Cluster, Tycho, uh, the Bullet Cluster. There are a whole bunch of them, M16, the Galactic Centre, There are, and some of them 
incredibly spectacular to listen to mm. and yeah i'd encourage you to uh, hunt those down i might get hugh to put the link in our um in our show notes in fact i can send it to him right now because he's listening and we're live so i'll just copy that link and send it to him as i speak mm. and then he'll be able to add that to the show notes for the next episode so there we go and, 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 uh, uh, so uh, yeah fascinating technology and it sort of gives gives sound to things that we've only ever really looked at yeah that's right and you know well for a start that's a wonderful bonus for vision impaired people to, yeah. to provide a different avenue for experiencing these marvelous celestial images one mm. thing i was just going to add andrew is that um a note, note to listeners it's really worthwhile Put it, plugging your headphones in and listening to these with headphones because they, they have taken very great care with the stereo effects. And uh, certainly my favourite one is that one of the, the centre of our Milky Way galaxy, uh, which is it sparkles. It literally sparkles as you, as you play. And the image in this case is being scanned from left to right. So you get lovely left to right sound effect when you listen to it in your headphones. Yes, yeah, so what I'll do is I'll, uh, I'll I'll download it and we might be able to listen to that at the end of the program because it is oh, uh, a truly be amazing piece of uh, music. We'll call it music, but it's, uh, yeah, the galactic uh, centre. And this this is a sequence that moves left to right on the screen. But, uh, yeah, yeah we'll, we'll do that at the end, eh? Sounds great, yeah. Once again, uh, from three different NASA telescopes, Chandra, Spitzer and the Hubble. Yes, indeed. So we'll do that a little later, but right now we'll take a little break on Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. Time to take a short break to tell you about our sponsor, NordVPN. Now, I've spoken many times about a virtual private network. It's a great way to protect you and your business from a criminal element. And let's face it, uh, crime online is uh, worse than it's ever been. Uh, people are getting hacked all the time. They're losing thousands and thousands of dollars. And globally, it's turned into millions, if not billions of dollars. And you really want good quality protection. And you get that with a virtual private network. And the best one you can get is NordVPN. Now, uh, it's not expensive. In fact, there's a special deal for you as a Space Nuts listener. If you want to take advantage of that deal, uh, I'll give you the details shortly. But uh, it, it is a, a fabulous way of getting a, uh, around uh, hackers and criminals. It makes your online data invisible to those people and to anyone else that you don't want sort of um, jumping around in your, in your cyberspace, so to speak. Uh, and it gives you uh, global access. Uh, you, you might uh, want to watch a TV show on a network in another country, and it's probably geo-blocked. I've had that happen a few times myself. But if you have a VPN and log into a server in that country, that's all gone. Uh, there are plenty of reasons to have a virtual uh, private network security probably being number one. But another advantage of NordVPN is it works on all the major platforms, Windows, Mac, Linux, Android, uh, iOS. Uh, and with uh, one single account, you can secure up to six devices with NordVPN. You can even add it to your router. You can also set it and forget it. So it's always going to be there working in the background, protecting you. And NordVPN is the fastest in the business. 
Now, as a Space Nuts listener, we have a special URL so you can access NordVPN and grab a very special deal. NordVPN.com slash Space Nuts, where you can use the special code Space Nuts to get NordVPN with benefits. It's a two-year plan, heavily discounted, giving you access to their high speed. We're talking 10 gigabits per second servers, uh, available in 60 countries uh, with security, as I said, for up to six devices. So check it out at nordvpn.com slash spacenuts and use the code spacenuts to grab this exclusive deal. nordvpn.com slash spacenuts. Now... Back to the show. Zero G and I feel fine. Space nuts. Okay, Fred, uh, back down to earth this episode or this segment. We're, we're talking about a new study that's been published uh, in the journal Science. And this is, this is really interesting. This is how they've discovered or analysed how the Earth's orbit has affected our ancient ice sheets. And it's in the phys, on the phys.org website, which is a really great place to go and read all sorts of articles and information about what's been going on and what sort of studies have been, uh, have been released. This is a very new one. Uh, now, I suppose we should talk about the old, uh, the old ancient ice sheets because we're we talking about times of, of much greater ice coverage than we have now. Yes, that's right. So this is early period. The Earth in its 4.6 billion year history has gone through various stages which we know about partly because we know about, you know, got evidence on the planet itself for for some of these phenomena, but also we understand how planets evolve, at least to a first approximation. So we've got some theoretical understanding. And at one stage, for example, we, we had what's called snowball Earth. It was just uh, solid ice yeah. all the way around. A bit like, um, I suppose, a bit like some of the, you know, the ice moons that we talk about on space nuts a lot, the moons of Jupiter and Saturn and the and the other gas giants. So it's an icy world that we're talking about. And this is the kind of putting the details on, though, on exactly how things have behaved. And this is research that comes from Cardiff University in Wales, where they have ice deadfods as well as Dubbo. And the, the idea is that you can link some of the evidence that comes from ice sheets, and it's probably from these deep core samples that um, that can be taken, and you can link that with the way the Earth's orbit behaves. Now, 20 years ago, people were very hard to try and link the Earth's orbit to climate change because they were in denial that it's us that's doing the present climate change, but that's <laughs> subsided a bit now. So an interesting area. And I should add, you know, that the, the kinds of changes in the Earth's climate that we're talking about due to changes in the orbit happen on much slower timescales than anything we're seeing today because of anthropogenic climate change. Um, yeah. I think we're probably fairly safe in saying that the last time the Earth's climate changed this quickly was after the, the Earth had been clouted by the, um, the Chicxulub asteroid 66 million years ago because that was pretty quick climate change then too but for a different reason so the orbital changes generate differences in the way the earth behaves in terms of its climate over you know longer periods they're they're, they're much more gradual changes and yeah. it's been known that the the two parameters in the earth's orbit that affect these ice sheets 
are um, the obliquity of the ecliptic, which is a gobbledygook. The That's the name of it, the obliquity of the ecliptic. <laughs> <laughs> it means the tilt of the Earth in its orbit. So it's that 23.5-degree angle of tilt, but its technical name is the obliquity of the ecliptic. Never um, heard that before. No, well, yeah, I had. Yeah, you can understand why when I was a teenager, astronomy, some parts of astronomy baffled me. <laughs> You've got to know the obliquity of the ecliptic. And yeah, it rolls off the tongue. I wish I'd known that when I used to play pinball machine. I used to get <laughs> tilt all the time. Yeah, tilt. It's tilt. That's right. Yeah, you could have said, oh, it's, it's the obliquity of the pinball machine. That's what's done it. <laughs> a good excuse. So that's one, the tilt of the Earth's axis. And the other is the precession of the Earth's axis. So um, you and I have talked about precession before. It's the it's exactly what happens if you've got a spinning top and you spin it up, it'll wobble slightly, it'll wobble around. In fact, its axis wobbles in a circle. Mm. And the Earth's axis does too with a period of 26,000 years, well understood, well established. <clears throat> and, but that itself actually makes changes because... Not only is the Earth's axis tilted, but the Earth's orbit is not perfectly circular. So we know, for example, that the Earth is closest to the Sun in January <clears throat> and furthest away in July. It's not by very much. It's 2 or 3%, if I remember rightly. And it's certainly not, doesn't, it's not what causes the seasons, often a misunderstanding that the seasons are caused by the distance between the Earth and the Sun changing. I'm sure no Space Nuts listeners think that because they know the seasons are due to the obliquity of the ecliptic, the tilt of the axis. Yeah, I was about to say that. <laughs> yeah. So, but what that means is when you combine those two, the obliquity with the fact that the Earth's orbit is, is slightly elliptical, it's not perfectly circular, it does mean that some there will be some times when the Northern Hemisphere is closest to the Sun and other times the southern hemisphere is closest to the sun. And so you get basically slightly warmer summers compared to the other. And that's on a kind of 10,000, probably more like 14,000, 13,000-year timescale. But the science on this is sort of complicated. And what's happened is that the studies have revealed that over the last million years, if you combine these effects, obliquity and the precession, the wobble, the, you know, the rotating of the, uh, the wobble of the axis, the rotation around the precessional axis, as it's called, and you can link these with the, with the uh, waxing and waning of northern hemisphere ice sheets, which is what this was all about. And, the, and you find that there are cycles that last roughly 100,000 years. That's over the past million years. But before that, the period that we call the early Pleistocene, that's the technical name for it, uh, looks as though the, the ice age cycles, there were cycles of ice ages, but it was the obliquity, the tilt of the Earth's axis that had the bigger effect, giving ice age cycles that were not 100,000 years long, but almost exactly, as the FIS.org report says, almost exactly 41,000 years long. And that's been a puzzle. Why hasn't precession played a role in this early period as well? And that's what this Cardiff University study has revealed, that actually precession did play a role in the early period of the Pleistocene. And so, you know, the 
it's a complex picture and to some extent we don't really see the detail in it but the the evidence is now that this is understood we actually understand why this 41,000 year cycle seems to be dominated by obliquity but actually precession was playing a part maybe i can put it a little bit more Distinctly, if I don't put it in my words, but actually quote the lead author of the study, whose name is Professor Stephen Barker, Cardiff University, who says, early Pleistocene, and that's the period we're talking about before, you know, earlier than a million years ago, early Pleistocene ice sheets in the Northern Hemisphere were smaller than their more recent counterparts and limited to higher latitudes, where the effects of obliquity dominate over precession. This probably explains why it has taken so long for us to find evidence of the precession forcing of the climate during early Pleistocene. These findings are the culmination of a major effort involving more than 12 years of painstaking work in the laboratory to process nearly 10,000 samples and the development of a range of new analytical approaches. Thanks to this, we can finally put to rest a long-standing problem in paleoclimatology and ultimately contribute to a better understanding of Earth's climate system. And he winds up by saying, I think very, you know, it's an important statement, this. He says, improving our understanding of Earth's climate dynamics even in the remote past, is crucial if we hope to predict changes over the next century and beyond. Ongoing changes may be man-made, but there's only one climate system and we need to understand it. Yeah, great comment. Yeah, great comment, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I, I am fascinated by how much we can learn from ice core samples. The things we can discover about our deepest, darkest past. Yes, yeah simply by drilling a hole and taking a chunk of ice out and looking at it under a microscope. I, I find that quite astounding. And did see something some time ago about uh, Earth's climate and how it um, fluctuates. I, I think it was, a, it was done with ice core samples. Yes. And they showed peaks and troughs spanning, I think, 11,000 years. Yep. And it was showing the heat and cool cycle of the planet. And what's been interesting in the last 200 years or so, funnily enough, is that the temperature rise phase has happened much, much sooner. And we haven't reached that peak yet, as the other core samples have shown. But the question is, do we stop and start going back down again or do we keep climbing? And that question can't be answered for another couple of thousand years from what I understand. So we won't be around to know, but... Uh, it does sort of make you pause that this this rate of temperature increase that is natural through ice core samples is actually happening faster because of our intervention. Exactly, and that that's a bit that's a bit scary, to be honest. It is scary, and it's why you know there's so much attention now on trying to fix some of the problems. Yes, yes. Well, it certainly seems good. to have been the reason that uh, we've had a change in go- of yes, government exactly. in this country, That's if right. you um, believe the popular press. So, who knows? But uh, I'm glad people are really starting to get more serious about dealing with these problems. This is Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. Three, two, one. Space Nuts. Okay, Fred, time to answer some audience questions. We've got a couple of audio questions and we've got a text question. 
And our uh, first question uh, comes from uh, from Ireland. I love this accent. I really do. Great question too, of course. That's the most important part. Here we go. All right, A. Dunks and Prof. Watts. I have a question about gravitational waves and the early expansion of the universe. So in the inflationary epoch, the universe expanded faster than the speed of light. And I've been told that that is because there is no uh, governor on this or no speed limit on the expansion of space-time. That space-time can expand or contract or be distorted faster than the speed of light. And that that's also, I guess, what makes black hole event horizons possible, that space-time is being pulled in faster than the speed of light, and so the event horizon is formed by that. Anyway, the question is, why then do uh, gravitational waves propagate at the speed of light? What is limiting the propagation of those waves to the speed of light if the deformation of space-time is uh, unlimited by that speed? Thanks very much. Love the show. Oh, by the way, it's Brendan in Ireland here. <laughs> I knew you'd get to that eventually, Brendan. Thanks for your question. We get a lot of questions about black holes and uh, we get a lot of questions about gravitational waves. Yeah, he's he's brought up an interesting point, Fred. It is, and it's beautifully put too. I um, It's a really interesting question and I'm not really enough of a physicist to be able to point to the mathematics, but uh, inflation... The idea, you know, that the the that space expanded at this colossal rate that was certainly not limited by the speed of light, um, that is really not well understood. There's good evidence that it happened. It was the idea was introduced in the 1980s to explain one of the anomalies that we 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 find in in when we're looking deep into the universe, and it's stuck. It's it's still accepted that within the first gazillionth of a second of the universe's existence after the Big Bang, it expanded by a, I think a factor of ten to the fifty is the usual the usual number that's put on it or thereabouts, mm-hmm. and that certainly would mean it exceeded the speed of light, and so since um, gravitational waves are propagated by vibrations in space-time. You might expect them to go at a different speed, <clears throat> but they don't. They they are propagated at the speed of light. And I, as I said, I'm not sufficiently familiar, <clears throat> excuse me, with the physical processes um, in order to be able to say why that should be, except that the speed of light is a curious quantity. You know, it's almost like a a magical touchstone in in the physics of the universe because as einstein demonstrated totally counterintuitive that the speed of light would remain constant but space could bend and time could bend but that's what happens space and time are flexible whereas the speed of light isn't and so it's an absolutely fundamental property of the universe in fact it came out popped out of uh, james clark maxwell's equations back in the 19th century when he was trying to do these calculations this fundamental number kept popping up and the speed of light so my guess is that what governs the speed of gravitational waves is the same sort of physics and yes even though the universe as a whole could expand so that the separation between two any two given points in it was increasing at greater than the speed of light that doesn't preclude that doesn't 
give gravitational waves carte blanche to go at any speed they like. I think they are dictated by the same laws of physics that dictate the, the speed of light itself. And it's a, that's a glib answer, Brendan, and I'm sorry that it's nowhere near as eloquent as your question was, but it's a very interesting question, and, and, and I think that's the bottom line, that you know, the speed of light is fundamental to the universe. Yeah, and it's the absolute limit. The only thing that goes faster is the universe itself. Yes, that's a way to put it, that's right. Yeah, well, it's you know, pretty rudimentary in my brain. That's about as technical as that's I can get. about as technical as I can get. <laughs> well, <I'm trying. laughs> All right, uh, Brendan, thanks for your question. Let's uh, move on to another question sort of related to, uh, to that one in, in some respects. Hey, Andrew. Hey, Fred. This is Jacob from Phoenix, Arizona. Um, thank you for answering all my other questions. You are both awesome for that and awesome for just answering all of our questions. Um, I do have a query, though, um, in regards to NASA's announcement that our universe seems to be expanding at a faster rate than what was previously expected. I find that fascinating, and I'm a little beside myself on exactly why that would be and um, how quickly it happened. So I wanted to ask the experts and see if you could maybe give me your thoughts, um, maybe your um, ideas on why that might be happening. But um, I appreciate both of you. I hope you're doing uh, both of you are doing well. And I'm a big fan of you all. I basically await new episodes. So <laughs> I'll be awaiting for this one um, or any of the new episodes that come along. Thank you so much for your um, your answer and um, your podcast go nuts <laughs> thanks jacob unfortunately we have no answer so we'll move to the next question <laughs> great stuff jacob <clears throat> don't listen to him he's just pulling your leg <laughs> so what's the answer for it well i think what we're talking about i'm not really quite sure of exactly what J jacob's question is but i'll hazard a, a shot so what we were talking about, and I think we covered this a couple of weeks ago, the fact that when you do the very best measurements of the Hubble constant, the current rate of expansion of the universe, you get this figure of 73 plus or minus one kilometer per second per megaparsec. That's to say that for every megaparsec or 3.2 million light years that you go further into space, <clears throat> the recession velocity is increasing by 73 kilometers per second. And yet, if you study the, the the flash of the Big Bang, the cosmic microwave background radiation, and look at the fluctuations in temperature that are in it, which is we interpret that as the imprint of sound waves, actually, from the early universe. Sound is a big theme in this particular episode of Space Nuts. The bang of the Big Bang is is preserved in almost like a fossil in this in this um, microwave background radiation. So there's much information in that. And people can use that to predict what the expansion of the universe should be today. And they get, six. what was it, 67.5 plus or minus yeah. 0.5 kilometres per second per megaparsec. So these two numbers are incompatible. And that's, I think, what uh, Jacob's asking about. Now, <clears throat> um, I think... I think the jury is still out on why that should be. But you might remember, I think, in the episode that where we covered that, Andrew, we also talked about this new theory, which uh, it was about changing one of the parameters. What was it? The photon-electron interaction parameter, I think, in our models yeah, of yeah, the universe. Yeah. 
<laughs> that was it. And if you do that, you get, uh, you find, you can tweak the the expansion, the predicted expansion from the from the cosmic microwave background radiation, so that it matches what we actually observe, and that filled these. Scientists, I can't remember where they were working, but it filled them with glee. But and then there was this. Oh, by the way, there's a byproduct on this, and that's that there's a mirror image universe going on alongside ours, um, right? <laughs> which, which I found very entertaining. I, um, I think it's still that theory is still very much a speculative piece of work, and I'm sure that even the authors would agree with that. But it's the kind of thinking, Jacob. I guess this goes back to your question. It's the kind of thinking that. Physicists, cosmologists, theoretical astronomers bring to these problems. There's there's a reason for it. If you've got these two measurements that don't agree, one of them's wonky in some way. We think we're measuring Hubble constant today very accurately, that 73 plus or minus one figure. And I suspect that we'll turn out the tweaking is all done in the interpretation of what the flash of the Big Bang is telling us. And that's what these scientists with the mirror image universe also concluded. So let's see where it goes. I don't have any ideas on the answer, but I think it will be something like that. And um, it might lead to some new physics, which is what we're always on the lookout for. Somebody forgot to carry the one. That's that's probably... That could be right. (laughs) (laughs) All right. There you go, Jacob. There might be more on this, so we'll just... Yeah, within the next 40 years, probably, there'll be something new to report. Let's stick around. (laughs) There's uh, Just uh, on that topic, I think they've now switched on the Large Hadron Collider again with uh, after an improvement in its energy levels. And, of course, they're looking for symmetries as well. They're looking for supersymmetry, which would be a huge breakthrough if evidence was discovered because that might lead us to explain all sorts of things like dark matter, possibly even dark energy. But it might also throw up insights into the kind of new physics that we we're just talking about there, this this one where you get the mirror image universe. So who knows what is on the future, the horizon. You, you I think just, it's great. You never do, do you? you never do. Mm. All right. Thanks, Jacob. Space nuts. We're going to throw in a bonus question. This is a text question that came in from Ron in New York. He says, according to NASA, Only 40% of asteroids larger than 140 metres in size have been discovered. How can they state that they've discovered only 40% of an unknown quantity? Is it that they survey a region of the solar system and count? Um, That's a really good question, Ron. I don't know. (laughs) So... It is a good question, and it's got a bit of history to it, this, because um, back in the 90s, I think, NASA was mandated by Congress to discover 90% of asteroids bigger than a kilometre across. Yeah. Um, it might even have been 95%. I can't remember the exact number. And they they achieved that. It's the same problem. How do you know you've got 95%? Why isn't it just 12% or something like that? And the reason mm. is that we have a pretty good understanding of the statistics of these objects there's a sort of spectrum of of sizes the the small sized objects are very very common and there are gazillions of them things a meter across and in fact one of those probably hits our atmosphere every day yeah. but the the dinosaur killers the things that will do global damage to the climate they turn up once in 100 million years so you know the sort of statistics that dictate 
the how many objects there are of each particular size. So it's it's all done on probabilities, which probably sounds a bit dangerous because but it's all we've got. And it was, I think, in the early 2000s that NASA was mandated, again by Congress, to discover 90% or 95% of all near-Earth asteroids bigger than 140 metres. And that's what they're doing now. So 40% is milestone en route to that. It's Again, it's, it's all done in a statistical fashion. And basically, it's not just looking at different bits of the solar system. These are These are small objects, actually. So they're difficult to find. That's, you know, that's the one good thing about potentially hazardous asteroids. The really dangerous ones are easy to see because they're big. They reflect a lot of sunlight. It's when you start getting down to these smaller sizes, and 140 metres is certainly dangerous if it clouts a city, but they get, they get harder to find. And so what yeah. you're doing is you're using your sensors, PANSTARS telescope, other telescopes, which are looking at the, you know, the entire sky and um, and finding as many as we can so that we improve the statistics. All that will take a, a big step forward, by the way, in a few years when the Vera C. Rubin telescope comes on stream. That's a telescope, an eight-metre telescope in Chile, which is currently being built, and will survey the whole sky every week, I think, down to a very deep level of faintness. So they will... They will push that 40% number up inevitably because you find asteroids as well as finding supernovae and neutron stars and things of that sort. That will push that 40% number up significantly, I would imagine. Okay, yeah. I just realised I missed half of Ron's question because it was hidden. It's on a spreadsheet, so it was hidden oh, okay. until I until you started talking. But he said, yeah, so is is it that they survey a region of the solar system and count these asteroids and then extrapolate that to the rest of the solar system, assuming a uniform distribution? If that's the case, realistically, that distribution is probably not uniform and we will have a false sense of security that we've got them all. Even one errant asteroid 140 metres across could mean a very bad day for us yes. if blindsides us thanks for the great podcast yeah, yeah that's you probably covered that anyway yeah, that's more or less what we we're saying yeah great question though ron thank you i, I just didn't want to leave ron in alert no, because no, he no he would have heard that half the question was missing but yes thank you ron hopefully we did uh well fred did uh cover your question and uh and yes feel free to send a follow-up we do enjoy your questions <clears throat> excuse me and you can send them to us via our website, spacenutspodcast.com or spacenuts.io. There are a couple of ways you can send us questions via the AMA tab where you can send us text and audio or on the right-hand side there's a little sort of semi-inverted tab where you can send audio questions to us. And while you're there, visit the Space Nuts shop and get yourself some goodies. Uh, there's lots to, to look at. Fred's books are there, a couple of other books by some hack as well. <laughs> You can join Patreon or Supercast. And don't forget our social media, Facebook, where we have an official Space Nuts page, and the Space Nuts podcast group Facebook page where listeners can get together and chat about astronomy and space science, all sorts of reasons to get online. Now, I was going to do one more thing before we finished, Fred, and that was to play the sonification of the galactic, well, the, gal the galaxy. Now, I've been having trouble with the audio today, so this might not work, which means I'll have to um, figure something else out, but I'll give it a go. We've heard this before. I haven't played it for a long time, but it is just a stunning piece of audio. Mm -hmm. 
I just love that. And it's just, it's just beautiful. And every sound represents a different thing in our galaxy. So there's sounds for stars, there's sounds for, well, every object that you can see in that image. It's, it's beautiful. Really nice. Indeed, that's right. Yes. Yeah, so, um, you know, the, the stars you can hear twinkling, the, the, those are the glockenspiel like uh, sounds which come from, I think, the Hubble telescope. Chandra, I think, is the thing that sounds like panpipes playing in the background. That's the X rays. Spitzer, I can't remember what component that is, but it, yeah, it's a beautiful mixture and well worth seeking out on the web, putting your headphones on and immerse yourself in the galactic center. Yes, indeed. And I. There'll be a link on the show notes to the, the site where you can listen to all of those audio. And then and there's video components as well, so you'll be able to actually see what you're listening to, <laughs> which is what it's all about. Indeed yeah. it is. Yes. Mm, all right. We'll have to wrap it up there, Fred. Thank you so much. <laughs> we'll uh, catch you again on, on the next episode. Sounds great, Andrew. Thank you to you too, and uh, take care, and we'll speak soon. We will indeed. Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large, and thanks to Hugh in the studio for keeping us all going every every week here on Space Nuts. And from me, Andrew Dunkley, thanks again for listening. Look forward to your company on the very next episode. Bye-bye. Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favourite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bytes.com. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.